Revelation chapter 11. We are uh, continuing with this one chapter that we've been in for three weeks now. Hopefully we make a little bit of progress tonight. We'll see how far we get. Uh, But it's this section about the two witnesses. And uh, if you've been with us, you remember that so far we've said the two witnesses are the church as a whole who bear testimony to Jesus in the gospel and that the testimony is trustworthy and reliable. And uh, what we learned last week as we were looking at this is that not only is the, the message trustworthy and reliable, but it's also a message of salvation and judgment. That the church, the witnesses, they preach a message that is a message of life to those who repent and believe in Christ, but that same message is also a message of judgment to those who refuse to repent and they continue in their sins. And the testimony of the church is going to continue until Christ returns. But the, the, what this passage is now letting us know as it continues on is that the church has an enemy. And the enemy of the church is also the enemy of God. In fact, that's why he's the enemy of the church. It's because he is the enemy of God. And that enemy is constantly attacking and seeking to oppress the people of God. And so that's what we learn about in this passage. I want you to see Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. Notice what happens here. And when they, the witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now, this is the first mention of the beast so far in Revelation. And we've kind of referenced him a few times, but this is the first mention of the beast in Revelation. And it's important to understand that the beast is not Satan. The beast is under the power of Satan. He's under the authority of Satan, but he is not Satan. And we learn more about that in chapter 13 when we get there in six months. So once we get to chapter 13, we'll dive into that a little more. But, but just for now, understand that the beast, he is under the power and the authority of Satan, who is later going to be referred to as the dragon, who has the ultimate authority for this realm. And uh, the beast, he comes from the abyss. And if you remember this from a, like a chapter or two ago, the abyss is the place of the demonic, right? It's the demonic realm where all demons uh, come from. And so the beast has demonic origins, and it operates under the power and the influence of Satan. And I want you to notice something here in this verse, verse 7. I want you to notice how the Bible is intentionally ambiguous here. It's intentionally ambiguous and generic in describing the beast. For instance, look at verse 7. Did you notice how no pronouns are used in relation to the beast? It doesn't say the beast who rises out of the bottomless pit, nor does it say that he will make war, he will conquer, or he will kill. It's intentionally ambiguous and generic because we're not meant to focus so much on what a beast might look like or how he might be personified. What we're supposed to focus on are the actions that the beast takes. That's the important thing to to focus on here because everybody wants to get hung up on what does the beast look like, you know? Will I be able to see him? Uh, Is there a description that I can recognize him by? And the Bible says, yeah, there is a description you can recognize him by, but it's not a physical appearance. It's the actions that he takes against God's people. 
the beast is the one who makes war on the people of God. He persecutes them. He tortures them. He kills them. And so we're, we're meant to focus on these actions so that when we see these actions in the world today, we will recognize the one who's doing these things as being the beast who comes from the abyss. Once again, it's a, it's a picture, right? God, through the book of Revelation, is giving us a new way to view the world. The, the world is not just merely what you see. He says there's a grand story going on here, and we have a, a real enemy who is constantly attacking us. And, and rather than just saying, hey, there's an enemy who's going to attack you, the, the Bible pictures it as like a beast, like from a great story. There's this beast who is coming to oppress a people who are devoted to God. And by the actions it takes, by the persecution and the killing and all these type of things, you can recognize this as being the beast, right? And and so, for instance, uh, when John, when he was writing this under the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he sent it to the churches in uh, Asia Minor. Who do you think they would have associated with the beast? When you're thinking about something or someone or an entity that is, Uh, persecuting Christians, making war on Christians, hunting them down, killing them, what would be the first thing that came to their mind? Yeah, the Roman emperor, right? The Roman empire as a whole. The Roman empire was the one who was hunting Christians down, right? They were persecuting Christians constantly. They were dragging them before the governors and before courts and and putting them to death. I mean, we've, we've mentioned many times about Nero, who would go and find Christians and then stake them up, and while they were still alive, put oil on them, and then light them on fire and use them as street lamps at night. The actions of an evil government persecuting Christians for no other reason than the fact that they believed in Jesus and were seeking to live a life that was faithful to Jesus. And so in the first century, when they hear the description of the beast, they naturally would have thought of the Roman Empire. So was the beast referring to the Roman Empire in the first century? Yeah, absolutely. But it's a picture, right? So that this picture can be applied throughout all of time. So there are some who say, well, this only refers to the Roman Empire. And I want to say it did, but the beast continues on throughout church history. So at one point, yeah, the beast was personified by the Roman Empire, sure. But throughout history, you've seen all sorts of beasts. Or rather, it'd be more appropriate to say you've seen the beast at work in a number of different entities throughout history, right? I mean, one that people don't like to think about is in the Middle Ages, even into the time of the Reformation and shortly after, I think you could characterize the Catholic Church as the beast, right? I mean, that might get me into trouble. It's okay. But it's true. Because at the time, the Catholic Church was hunting down anyone who um, was not part of the Catholic Church, who broke away in pursuit of this new thing called Protestantism. And, I mean, Martin Luther had to go on the run and hide for over a year, in which he was translating the Bible, because they were hunting him down. You read about this throughout church history, where people were literally killed for their faith. You read about John Huss, who was killed by the Catholic Church, because he believed that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And for just believing that message, they burned him at the stake. Read about others who died and were persecuted for their faith, like William Tyndale, who his main aim was just to put the Bible in the hands of anybody who could read. 
And at one point he said, I'm going to have the boy pushing the plow know more Bible than the Pope. And he's put to death for it. You see, all throughout history, it's not just an evil government. It is any time someone is persecuting Christians, oppressing Christians, killing Christians just because of their faith in Jesus and their adherence to Scripture, they take up the mantle of the beast. You see the beast today. I mean, I think the North Korean government, I think you could rightly say that they are a picture of the beast today, given what they do to Christians in their country. I think the same thing could be said for radical Islamic groups. I mean, you think about ISIS and others like them, and they are putting Christians to death, persecuting them, hunting them down. I think they could be described as the beast today. Here's what concerns me is that the American government is beginning to look more and more like the beast. And I don't say that lightly, but they are starting to wage war on Christians, just as the Bible says the beast does. They are trying to limit our ability to live out the faith. They're trying to limit and censor what we can preach. If we don't preach something that meshes with their ideology, if it goes against what's common and the norm today, they want to shut us down and label it as hate speech and and try to close us down because we preach the gospel. You're seeing people in prison. Yes. Oh, yeah, true. I didn't get going enough for that, Gene. But let me just say, there are a couple times I have been personally censored twice on Facebook for preaching. I only preach the Bible here. You'll never see me talk about or preach anything else, but you preach the Bible and they take you off Facebook, all because you say you should be more obedient to God than government. And I'll say it again. Yeah, and then you ask them what the rules are. Our community standards. Yeah. That's the problem. That's the problem. I think the message he's referring to, one of the first ones was when I was saying, defy tyrants and obey God. And it was about obeying God rather than the government, which I stand by. I do not recant anything I've ever said. So um, they can take us off again. But the, the point is, you look at the American government today, and they're trying more and more. This is what's concerning. Big tech, American government, they're trying more and more to exercise control over the church. And as Mr. McKinney said in his prayer, Jesus runs the church. Not the American government, not big tech, not big media. They have no say in what goes on here. Well, you live in their country. It doesn't matter. This is God's world. (laughs) They may claim the country as their own, but this is God's world. God runs the show here. Jesus is in charge here. They have no say in what we do. And yet they are trying more and more to exercise control. They're becoming to look like a picture of the beast. The point is the beast is known by the actions it takes against God's people. And so John is describing the church as at being a church that is persecuted at all times. Throughout the church's existence, we will be hated. We will be opposed. We'll be persecuted. We will be killed for our faith. Now, that doesn't mean that every single Christian will be a martyr. That's not going to happen. But it does mean that every single Christian will experience some level of persecution in their life. Every single Christian will experience some level of hatred and opposition, all because we have faith in Jesus. And this passage is saying, as we discussed last week, that the majority of Christians will die. And and I want you to hear what this passage has to say about that. Look at verses 8 through 10, if you have your Bibles. 
it says after the, the witnesses die and their, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Let me just pause before I say anything else. I would love if our church was a torment to people who dwell on the earth. I'd love nothing more than for Christians to be a thorn in people's side. Unfortunately, we're weak and cowardly. That's another sermon. I've already preached it, but I just wanted to say that point. I'd be hating on myself if I didn't. But I want you to notice something here in these verses. It's very interesting. These verses require some careful attention uh, because, again, there are those who advocate for a literal return of two individual people. And again, that's a legitimate view. We're not dismissing it. But they often claim that these, uh, these witnesses will return and they will minister and ultimately die in the city of Jerusalem, since that's where they crucified our Lord. Now, again, this is a legitimate interpretation. It's a totally uh, fair one to have. However, I don't know that that is necessary to imbue it that way, because, uh, for instance, did anyone ha- else happen to notice that the verse itself tor- told us to lean towards a symbolic understanding of this verse, or these verses. Did y'all notice that? It, it, it specifically told us to lean towards a symbolic understanding because it literally says, symbolically. And that tells us that we should be thinking symbolically, not literally. There's another clue here that this is not referring to a literal city. Does anybody else see the clue there? It's easy to miss, takes a little thinking, that the great city might not actually be referring to a literal city. Not only does it say symbolically, but notice it it says uh, the city is symbolically called Egypt. What's the problem there? Egypt's not a city. Egypt's a country. It's not a city. Right? So so, it's, it's really interesting because it's not saying necessarily that this is a literal city. It's saying, hey, symbolically, the, this city that we're talking about. Um, and, and there's a really interesting concept that's going on here. And, and in fact, it's a concept that the Apostle John really sheds more light on than any other biblical writer. And it's this concept of the city of God and the city of man. Uh, it, it's re- referring kind of to what Jesus said in John's gospel where he said, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. You all remember that? Jesus said that it, he's, he's contrasting these two cities. He's saying there's the city of God and there's the city of man. And the city of man is the world. And you are to be in the world, but you belong to a different city, a heavenly city. That is where your citizenship is. Uh, the great theologian Augustine, he really fleshed out this idea in his book called the city of God. And he uses these, uh, this idea of two cities to describe the relationship between the earthly realm and the divine realm. And so uh, the city of God, it refers to uh, the king, God's kingdom made up of those who are Christians and seek to do God's will and follow Jesus. It's a city that's characterized by love and justice and virtue. It's an eternal city that transcends earthly boundaries. But then the city of man, it refers to the earthly realm, and it's characterized by human societies and governments and cultures. It's marked by sin and selfishness, 
and worldly pursuits is a city that's inherently flawed and prone to corruption because it is driven by human desires and ambitions. And these two cities, they coexist in our world. They're intertwined, but they're distinct. Okay, it, it, Therefore, it's possible to live in the city of man while actually being a citizen of the city of God. So you can imagine it like this. This is everything that exists, odd shape. It's everything that exists, and this is the city of God. God has rule and domain over everything here. He's got dominion, and within this, there's this little realm that coexists within it, and this is the city of man. So the city of man, it exists at the same time as the city of God, so that, you know, Alex can be here living in the city of man, but I'm also a citizen of the city of God. And Augustine was really trying to help us understand this concept of what it means to live as a citizen of God's kingdom in a world that is so corrupted by sin. He was trying to expound on what Jesus said. You're to be in the world, but not of the world. And John, as I said, more than any other biblical author, he references uh, the world more than any other biblical author. You read the, the Gospel of John, you read First John, uh, 2nd, 3rd John, Book of Revelation. John is always talking about the world, and he views it as a sinful place that is in opposition to God, that is in desperate need of God's mercy and grace and salvation. And so here, when he's referring to the great city, He's referring to to this world, to the city of man, this place that is opposed to God and his ways. This is the place where they crucified Christ. Christ did not die in the city of God. It would have never happened there. He died in this sinful world, the city of man. That's where he was put to death. And, And notice, when you think about it in that regard, as this great city being the city of man or the world, It makes sense of these descriptions because notice, this city is likened to Sodom. Uh, Sodom was a place that was famous for its wickedness and immorality. By referring to the great city as Sodom, the Bible is emphasizing the moral corruption and sinfulness of this world. But notice too, that the Bible also says that the city is symbolically called Egypt, which again is not a city, but Egypt is all throughout the Bible is associated with oppression and bondage and opposition to God. And so by referring to the great city as Egypt, the Bible is communicating a number of things. First and foremost, it's highlighting the spiritual enslavement and captivity that exists within the city of man. That this is the place where sin is. And this is the place that calls his people to be slaves to sin and in constant bondage and in need of restoration and deliverance. But second, it's drawing attention to the city's opposition to God and his ways. That's what the Bible is saying here, that the city of man, it's like Sodom. It's wicked. It's immoral. It's like Egypt. It oppresses people, and it's opposed to God and his ways. That's the world we inhabit. And so, yes, Jesus was literally crucified in the city of Jerusalem, but he was symbolically, and it told us to to think symbolically, he was symbolically crucified in the city of man, the world corrupted and opposed to God and his ways. And so in the same way, the Bible is saying here that Christians throughout history, while being citizens of the city of God, will die nonetheless in this world, in the city of man, 
and there they will lie in the streets. And not only that, but notice what the Bible says. It says that the world will gaze upon their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Now, why would that be the case? Well, in the ancient world, not to bury a body was considered a great indignity and shameful. And so it's a way of expressing contentment towards the people of God. You want to have contempt towards them. You want to shame them. You want to have indignity towards them. So you don't bury them. It's, It's a way of saying that even in the death of Christians, the world mocks them and seeks to make a show of them, which is exactly what the Bible says. It says the world rejoices in the deaths of Christians, and they make merry, and they exchange presents because the church had been a torment for the people on earth. It's a picture of the world taking pleasure in the death of Christians and rejoicing. Let me ask you a question. If this is going on throughout all of history, do we see this today? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, any time horrific, you know, uh, killings by ISIS and other extremist groups. I mean, just think about that. Y'all remember years ago when they were lining up Christians and, and just executing them, back of the head, just shooting them. And then they were posting the videos on the internet for people to, to watch and enjoy. And they were celebrating. They were having a great time. They just got to murder a bunch of Christians. They were laughing, mocking, and rejoicing. That's, that's exactly what we see here. Why did they do that? It's because the Christians were a nuisance to them. The Christians refused to stop talking about Jesus. They refused to stop preaching Jesus. They wouldn't abide by what they wanted them to do, and so they had to be rid of them. They had to execute them. I mean, I think of another example from from recent years. Maybe you all remember there was a young man who uh, he wanted to reach uh, an island of people who had never been reached before. You all remember this? He wanted to go there. This tribe was totally uncontacted. They had no idea what was going on in the outside world. They were just all on their own. And this guy said, I want, I want to go and tell them about Jesus. He didn't even know their language. And so he goes, and, and you know, whatever, people have said a lot about his methods, but whatever his methods, his intentions were pure. All right, let's just say that. He saw people who didn't know Jesus, and he wanted to make sure they knew Jesus. And almost as soon as he stepped foot on the island, the, the tribesmen came out and they murdered him. And they were dancing over his body and they were shouting and, and, and shouting praise and all this kind of stuff. And I remember when that happened, there were all sorts of reactions to that. And the worst reactions came from those who hate Christianity and hate the faith. I, I saw people who literally said, He got what he deserved. A man who was trying to go to a people and tell them about Jesus and take the gospel to them murdered in cold blood, and they said he got what he deserved. They said he was a colonizer and a crusader who just wanted to make a name for himself, and so he got what he deserved. When I see that story, all I see is the city of man dancing and rejoicing over the dead bodies of one of God's faithful witnesses in this world. It's a picture of exactly what Revelation says we will see in this world, that the enemies of God will take joy in the deaths of God's people. But then I want you to notice how this passage ends. It it reminds us of one of the most wonderful truths of all of Christianity. It's that death is not our end. (laughs) They can rejoice 
They can celebrate in our death for a short time. Let them enjoy it while they can. Because the Bible says death is not our end. Look at verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God, to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Now, now there's a lot of symbolism going on here, and I, I want you to see that, but I want you to remember that the ministry of the witnesses lasts three and a half years. Y'all remember that? And uh, we said there's a, a number of reasons for that. It connects with other places in the Bible. We don't have time to recount that. But another interesting connection is that the ministry of Jesus lasted how long? About three and a half years. And, and so the ministry of the witnesses for Jesus is meant to be connected to the ministry of Jesus himself. Jesus ministered for three and a half years here on earth, and so do his witnesses. Uh, but, but notice this too. The witnesses remained dead for three and a half days. Now, uh, a number of things could be said here about this. It, it could be literal. It could be symbolic or figurative. Uh, many people see a connection between Jesus' time in the grave, even though he was dead in, in the grave only three days. But the number, whatever it is, whether literal or figurative, it's just meant to convey that their death only lasts for a defined period of time that they will not always be dead. That's the point of that. Do you get that? So whether it's literal, whether it's symbolic, the point is that death is is finite. It is limited. There is an ending point of it where they will no longer be dead because after this time, the Bible says the breath of life from God enters into the witnesses and they stand on their feet. Now, does anybody see a connection here to any other passage in Scripture? What does this look like? You've got a bunch of, of dead people here that point you know they're they're dead and all of a sudden the breath of life from god breath is the same word in hebrew and greek as spirit ruach or pneuma if you're in greek breath or spirit breathed into these dead people they come to life and they stand on their feet remind you of anything else in the bible yeah Valley of Dry Bones, it's almost uh, just taken right from there, right? The Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I want you to notice how similar Ezekiel 37, 10 is to what we just read. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. It's exactly what, what the Bible says here in Revelation, that, that God's going to breathe life into these dead people, and they're going to come back to life, and they're going to stand on their feet. And so the whole point of Ezekiel 37 is, is this picturing the, the nation of Israel. They're exiled at this point. They're saying, hey, they're like a, a whole bunch of dead, dry bones. They're exiled. Their enemies have won. They're defeated. They're like a valley of dry bones. And God promises and says, yes, they are now, but I'm going to breathe new life into them. And they're going to be joined together again. And they're going to stand up and they will have the final victory. And the same thing is true here in Revelation. 
that the people of God now, the church, we may seem like a bunch of exiled, out-of-place, defeated people. At times, the, the church, Christians, we look like nothing more than a whole bunch of dry bones. You ever seen a church or a Christian like that? Nothing more than just a valley of dry bones who suffer defeat at the, the hands of the enemies of God. But God promises in this passage to breathe new life into us, to raise us up back to life, and to give us the final victory over his enemies and our enemies. This is the vindication of the righteous. This is the triumph of the Lamb. Though the world opposes us now, though the world persecutes us now, though the world oppresses us now, though they delight in our defeats and our deaths and our setbacks, the Bible says here, God will vindicate his people. The enemy will not have the final word. The enemy will not have the last laugh. The enemy will not have ultimate victory. Jesus will have the victory. And every single person who puts their hope and their trust in him will get to share in that victory with him. And we will stand triumphantly with him for all of eternity, shouting his praises, for the Lamb has received the reward for his sufferings. So death is not our end, church. They can kill us. They can do that. They can mock us. They can laugh at us. They can persecute us. They can oppress us. They can torture us. They can ultimately put us to death. And they can enjoy it. And they can laugh after we're dead. Say our God abandoned us. But one day the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So those people who mocked us will be brought to their knees. We'll go there voluntarily. <laughs> they will be brought to their knees when faced with the glory of God and the victory of Jesus. And so that's our hope, that death is not our end. No matter what happens to us in this life, we will be with Jesus forever because he will have the victory. All right, we made it through almost all, of Revelation chapter 11. That's as far as we're going to get tonight. Michael Stevenson, how about leaving us with a word?